Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the IoT for All podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Chacon, and I am joined today by my co-host, Kayla McClelland, who is one of IoT for All's most prominent writers. Now, today's guest is Hope Bavenzi, an automotive systems engineer at Texas Instruments. She focuses on the telematics, which is basically the connectivity of the car. She builds reference designs that helps customers at top tiers and OEMs accelerate their design experience, which is really cool. Now, I know when you hear... Texas Instruments. Most of you are probably thinking about that calculator you used back in high school. I still remember my TI-83+, Plus, so don't worry. We're all in the same boat. But Texas Instruments is so much more than that. They're actually a semiconductor company that builds microchips and integrated circuits that go into electronic devices. Now, when we break down this episode, you'll hear a lot more about what Texas Instruments actually does, which is really fascinating to learn. On this episode, We do cover a lot about telematics. We discuss what telematics actually is, the history of telematics, which I found very fascinating, and the role it's playing in bringing us closer to autonomous driving. Um, This leads us then into a discussion about V2X, or vehicle-to-everything connectivity, which is the next big trend in the automotive industry. We jump into how cars speak to one another, the different technologies involved, and the fight for supremacy in that space. Um, We then get into breaking down the different levels of autonomy, which many of you have may heard of, but maybe not know the details. So make sure you listen for that. Um, And the challenge is that each level of autonomy faces in becoming more real and actually being used in real life. Um, All in all, we do pose some very interesting discussions and questions and Hope does a fantastic job at answering them. So this is a really good episode for you to listen to. Now, one of the coolest things for me on this episode was seeing, well, I guess hearing the passion Hope had for what she's building and what she does as an engineer. And this translates really well into the passion she kind of talks about at the end of the episode with her involvement in organizations both within and outside of Texas Instruments that focuses on empowering women in the tech industry, as well as encouraging equality in STEM education for girls who are looking to pursue tech fields. She explains to us the biggest hurdles or challenges in getting women into the tech industry and what we can do as individuals and those of of us out there who are parents with young girls to help encourage young women to continue their STEM education and curiosity exploration as they grow up. So this episode overall from end to end provides a ton of value. I promise it is worth your time. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Hope Bavenzi of Texas Instruments. Welcome to the IoT for All podcast, Hope. Thanks for being on the show with us today. Thank you, guys. I'm excited. Great, great. I'm joined uh, with my co-host, Kayla McClelland, who runs the operations for IoT for All and is one of our most prominent writers. Say hi, Kayla. Hi, everyone. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> all right, Hope. So let's. Um, I think the best way to kind of start this off would be if you could take us take a moment to kind of introduce yourself to the audience, give a little insight into who you are, and you know what you do for Texas Instruments. Yeah. So. Um, like you said, my name is Hope Bobenzi. I am an automotive systems engineer at Texas Instruments. Um, I think a lot of people think of Texas Instruments, if you're not in the industry, as uh, the guys who do calculators. Uh, we do a lot more than that. We're actually a semiconductor company. Um, so we build uh, all the little microchips, integrated circuits that go into every single one of your uh, electronic devices. And um, I particularly focus on... Um, automotive systems, and within that, uh, telematics, which is essentially the connectivity of of the car. And I build reference designs um, that help our customers at top tier ones and OEMs um, help 
accelerate their design process, um, especially for infotainment systems and telematic systems in their cars. Could you break down what <laughs> Does, more, more detail about what like telematics is? I mean, it's a term that I think a lot of people know. <laughs> yeah. We probably like, you know, get it right off the bat. But I think there's a lot of people who probably heard of telematics and know, especially when it comes to connected car and autonomous vehicles. But is there, can you break it down to kind of layman's terms so people could kind of grasp like, oh, I, I get what that means when, when they kind of hear the explanation. Right. Yeah. Telematics is, um, it's essentially making your car an IoT device. If I were to really break it down, um, telematics is the common term in the automotive industry. And it really started, um, if you think about the evolution, uh, started with emergency calling, which is uh, a mandated um, uh, legislative me measure in the European Union now, uh, starting actually almost a year ago, um, where all new cars had to have emergency calling features um, in uh, new cars sold. And it started off like that about 10 years ago. And then slowly you started putting like more connected things into it, like GPS. Right. So not only is it a cell phone anymore, it's got a cell phone and GPS. And it's just kind of snowballed from there. <laughs> There's so many aspects of connectivity um, that uh, are in the car today or are being designed into cars today. Uh, and that's what telematics really encompasses. So that, I guess when you're kind of going back to the, the start of telematics, I mean, that's when they're putting in um, connectivity into the car for the first time, not just obviously the service, but that's like, you know, putting in a cellular connectivity or some way that they can mm -hmm. contact. And is that kind of what led, I guess, maybe people here are more familiar with like things like OnStar and that kind of that kind of device? You got it. You okay. hit the nail on the head. Okay. Um, OnStar is uh, GM's version of telematics or emergency calling. Okay. Um, and they, they were actually kind of ahead of the times, um, which is funny because the mandate for emergency calling actually happened in, in the European Union. Gotcha. Um, so it's, yeah, most people know uh, OnStar. That's probably the most tangible thing here in the United States, but um, around the world, um, there are different kind of versions of that, um, even across different OEMs or automotive manufacturers. Um, they call it different things. So <laughs> that's what telematics is. Yeah. So when it comes to telematics, I think most people can think about things like OnStar or using uh, GPS navigation within their vehicles. What are some other examples of telematics that are really valuable uh, that are in use today that people might not be as familiar with? Oh my gosh. It's, it's something that's so exciting in the industry right now because we, we call it the connected car. I think you guys mentioned it already, but the connected car, it's just adding connectivity, any sort of connectivity and just more and more of it into the car. Um, so yeah, it started um, as a cell phone being added into a car and then adding a little bit of GPS. Um, but from there, it's grown to, um, you know, your remote keyless entry um, to just unlock your car. But it's even um, gone into something called uh, V to X or vehicle to everything, which just is everything being the um, just a, a way to say like, 
vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle to pedestrian, vehicle to cloud. Um, that's, I think that's the next big trend for automotive. And that's something that uh, automotive manufacturers are actively designing. And what that will enable is <laughs> so much. You start to see it already with vehicle to cloud communication where you can uh, do over the air updates in your car. So it's, you don't have to just like <laughs> wait for a new car model to come out to get an updated infotainment system. Um, you can do over the air updates and, and update your car, you know, every, every couple weeks or so whenever a new update is pushed from the manufacturer. But not only that, um, you have uh, something that's being discussed in the automotive world called vehicle-to-vehicle communication, which essentially allows cars to talk to one another. And that's going to be really important as we kind of go through, go to higher levels of autonomy, um, really level three autonomy and beyond, um, where it will put a more predictive approach to a reactive um, mechanism. So right now with autonomous driving, you have radar or LIDAR that's like sensing the world around the car and putting a connectivity feature um, like vehicle to vehicle communication into the car will allow the car to actually talk to the talk to its environment. Um, that's something that I'm really excited about. Wow. Yeah. So I think there's a lot there to dig into. Which, uh, <laughs> I know, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, so I guess just to summarize, uh, in talking about V to X, uh, uh, one, one way maybe one could think about it would be just as our smartphones have the capacity to connect to a variety of different things, so to a Wi-Fi network or to okay. cellular or to Bluetooth, and all of these different things enable different applications. So you can call people via cellular network. Uh, you can use cellular or Wi-Fi okay. to access various applications. Uh, you can use Bluetooth yeah. to connect to things in your local environment, like speakers. Um, in a similar way, with vehicles adding different kinds of connectivity, suddenly they can now begin connecting to different things. And so they can connect to the cloud, vehicle to cloud, as you mentioned. Um, they can connect to other vehicles. They can connect to infrastructure, like potentially stoplights or things around them. Mm -hmm. um, and potentially connect to people, which we can either talk about now or later. I'm curious what that looks like. Uh, but for the vehicle, yeah. vehicle to vehicle, um, I'm really curious there because it seems like I feel like I, I remember reading years ago in like popular science or something talking about the, the cars of the future and how they might all communicate with each other uh, and mm -hmm. use that to coordinate with traffic or um, to avoid colliding with each other. And that seems great as a vision, but it also seems to me now having worked in the IoT industry that there are some barriers to that. Like, okay, well, what are the standards for how these things communicate? What things are they communicating? Right. So what does that look like? Like what, in what form would they be communicating? Does it make more sense that they would communicate up to the cloud? There'd be some centralized thing in the cloud that would then talk back down to vehicles? Or are there cases where it really does make sense for vehicles to talk directly? And what are some of those cases? Yeah, I think all the questions that you just asked are the questions that the industry is asking right now too. Um, and they're still being determined actually. Um, right now you have a big battle. Um, you, you may not know it, but there's a battle going on um, between cellular V to X 
and uh, DSRC, which stands for Dedicated Short Range Communication. DSRC has been around for a couple decades, I believe. It's it's a longstanding um, standard that people are familiar with. And um, you also have cellular VITA-X, which is exactly what it sounds like, cellular um, enabling technology. And it's a these are two different types of standards. Um, and I don't want to go too much into the, the nitty gritty of the technical, but um, there are different bodies, different um, groups that are pushing for these different standards. Um, right now, it's kind of DSRC is the status quo and what has been adopted or um, what governments have um, supported and kind of protected that the frequency band that it operates in. But 5G, as you know, everyone's anticipating, um, a lot of a lot of people are pushing for 5G in the cellular version of Vita X, um, which both they both have different trade-offs, obviously. But it's something that is really difficult to align on. A lot of people, a lot of companies have and legislators have to play nice um, in order to kind of agree on these different standards in order for them to, you know, work because it's when it comes to anything connected, you have to have multiple connection nodes and points and um, you have to agree on that standard at some point. So um, that is that is something that's being decided on. It's literally legislation across the world, even here in the United States, is um, this is being discussed right now. Um, and oh. you also asked a question about um, you also asked a question about uh, whether it made sense to uh, con connect to the cloud first versus um, just car to car. And I think it's I think it's going to be more car to car. Um, as opposed to connecting to the cloud first, because what if you don't have um, that connection? Um, so these DSRC uh, cellular VDX can um, operate without um, a network connection. And if it becomes a safety critical application, um, you're going to have to you're going to have to be able to rely on it even without a network. Yeah, that makes total sense. So. The idea would be that if you're out somewhere without a cellular tower and the only way you can communicate with the car next mm -hmm. to you is you have to go up to a tower, then back down to that car, mm -hmm. then in the absence of cellular connectivity, there wouldn't be any communication. Uh, so that makes sense to me. But yeah. what I'm curious about is what are some of the uh, either current or imagined benefits of when vehicles or if vehicles could talk directly to each other? Like what are some of the use cases for uh, that kind of connectivity? Yeah, I started to um, to kind of go down that explanation a little bit earlier, but I'll give you a more specific example. Um, adding adding some sort of connectivity as you're just imagine driving down a road and you've got a more autonomous car. It's probably level three, so you've you've got some sort of autonomy already, um, and the car stops pause. in front of you. Can you explain level three? Yeah. I'm sorry. I know I'm in the automotive world and, and I just assume everyone knows what level three is. Um, generally speaking, level one is um, is feet off. 
So it's kind of adaptive cruise control. Level two is hands-off. Um, so it's, it's kind of that uh, lane line guidance. Um, level three is where your eyes are off, but there's still like a, a backup. Um, you still have to kind of be in control of the car in case um, something happens. And level four and beyond, it's kind of steering wheel is optional. Um, and so level three, when your hands or when, when your mind's off um, of the, uh, when your mind is kind of off of the situation, when your hands are, or when your eyes are off of the situation of the road, um, that's, that's really where uh, we think that vehicle to, vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to X will be more useful. Um, there's a better business case because it's putting a predictive component um, to a reactive component in the car, which is the LIDAR or autonomous um, portion of the car. So I have a question. I think this has been a discussion point that I've had with other people. So when you have, when you get to this level three autonomy with the cars, what happens when you're interacting with cars that don't have the technology in them, you know, older cars? Like how, how does work? I mean, yeah. that's, that's just challenges like on the surface, right? But are there ways, you know, mm -hmm. well, do you believe that there'll be ways to kind of integrate this technology into kind of, let's say, legacy cars? Um, or is it going to kind of really not be able to have be a full effect until every car is able to kind of be uh, have the technology in it? Well, there's a certain threshold that you have to overcome um, with the number of cars on the road that have certain amount of connectivity to be able to establish, say, even a traffic pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's not that high, actually. I think it's like around 10 to 15%. Um, and if you live a densely populated area like I do in, in Silicon Valley, <laughs> um, then uh, it, it becomes a little bit easier to, to probably get to that threshold with the amount of connectivity you have on the roads already, um, the connected cars that you have on the road. Um, but... Yeah, I think you're. I think you have a good point. There is backwards compatibility. There, we are seeing that today, even um, with aftermarket solutions, is what we call it, where you can plug in um, connected devices to your um, to your uh, car, and you see that. I mean, you've, I think you've seen it with like insurance trackers. That's that's one example of it, um, but. There's, there's these things called OBD dongles that you plug into your car that have like Wi-Fi hotspots, that have GPS tracking, um, that have uh, cellular connections to add emergency calling in the event of an accident into your car. Um, so I do think that there will be aftermarket solutions in the future um, as we're as we're seeing more cars just integrate it at the OEM level, at the automotive manufacturer level. Um, but you're right, there has to be a certain uh, a threshold. The number of cars on the road have to have a certain amount um, of connectivity or a certain amount of uh, autonomy for them to interact well. And same with the, the connectivity, whether it be DSRC, the dedicated short range communication, or the cellular V2X, whatever. Um, <laughs> our legislative bodies decide to go with. Gotcha. So I, one of the things I'm curious is, is this might not even be relevant at all, but um, a lot of, a lot of the way we kind of figure out traffic patterns now is through our cell phones. 
um, like with Waze mm-hmm. and you know, um, and Google Maps, for instance. Do you see any kind of kind of benefit for that once this, uh, you know, we kind of reach that level three um, and these cars are talking more to each other, or do you see they kind of work as a complement, or, or what are your kind of views there? Uh, are you asking if, say, using Google Maps um, will still be necessary in the future, or if you yeah. know your car will just be able to do it on its own? Yeah, I can't, kind of more like the ladder and kind of figure out like you know where the is is there not just value in in the Google Maps and the Waze type tools, but um, is there a way that they may be able to kind of help with the process? I think so. I think that. Um, you know, tapping into Google Maps, I think that that would be a very useful tool. I think that begs the question of, um, you know, how is it being utilized? Is it um, tapping into it on your phone or is it tapping it into an internal system um, in the car? And of course, that that gets into security questions, that gets into um, safety questions, reliability questions, because... When it comes to um, the connected car, uh, it really is an IoT device, but the safety and security implications are um, pretty severe. Um, And that's, I think that's a question that a lot of OEMs and tier ones um, in the automotive world are asking. Gotcha, gotcha, cool. Can we get anything? Yeah, so I guess speaking of you mentioned inside the car and, and talking about Google Maps and Waze and things that are currently on the phone, but perhaps might migrate to within the car itself. Uh, taking a look inside the car, as as cars continue to become smarter uh, and more connected and potentially moving to level three or even to level four, where people don't need to have their eyes on the road um, or you know, at level four to even have to be in the driver's seat. Uh, what does that begin looking like? Or what are some of the things you're excited about as far as how that begins to change the experience within cars? Oh my gosh. Just like, I love this question because it's like, picture picture your ideal commute scenario and that's that's what it's going to be in the future. You're, I hate sitting in traffic as I'm sure everyone um, who's listening to this does. They might be in traffic right now. <laughs> um, I hate... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like everyone hates it. It's it's a common um, common hatred for for traffic, um, or you know, even looking for parking. Um, how stressful is that, right? <laughs> um, looking for parking, sitting in traffic. These are things that we'll be able to outsource to connectivity in the future. Um, the example of looking for parking, like. The, your car will be able to talk to a lamppost or to um, that building over there and that building saying, hey, there's a free parking spot right here and your car just drives to it and you don't have to worry about it. Or your car is you know, taking you to work and you're able to sit there um, in your connected car. It has Wi-Fi capabilities and Um, If you're a good employee, you're doing work, you're sitting there and answering emails, or if you need a little bit of a break, you're streaming uh, something off of Netflix, Um, you know, and you can do that all right in your car. Um, And it's, it's kind of a seamless environment. I think that's what's, what is really going to happen, what people really 
from a consumer level are pushing for. They want more of their home or office environment in their car. Um, they want a seamless transition and be able to be productive, be able to relax, spend family time, um, or, or uh, like working time in the car. Uh, and that's, I think, it's just, it's not gonna be wasted time anymore. It's going to be useful time. Um, we're gonna get that time back in the day. And I think that's that's something that I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> when I was, at, um, I was at CES, went to a, uh, I guess BMW had this big exhibit and they had this VR experience that they put me through, um, put the headset on, sit down, you know, driving the car. Mm -hmm. um, and then it starts to basically go through levels of autonomy where, you know, you're only controlling the steering wheel, you're not controlling the steering wheel, you're sitting there, then the whole entire um, windshield turns into a, a computer monitor. Um, you know, you're calls, <laughs> your friends are calling mm -hmm. you, you're talking to your friends, you're watching the football game, you're unlocking the door to your house, you're you know, doing all of this stuff from your car. And I know, um, at least at a high level, um, and I, we didn't really get into this yet, but kind of learning a little bit more about what, you know, your role is when it comes to like that infotainment um, side of things. So as autonomous vehicles kind of reach these, you know, levels three, four and beyond, um, the design of that um, probably brings along with it some exciting and maybe scary challenges to, to building that infotainment and that entertainment system for the driver. I'd just love to hear from your side of things, mm -hmm. kind of what those challenges may look like and kind of what you're most excited about or maybe scared about when it comes to building those infotainment systems, like what kind of opportunities there really are for, for you to kind of like unleash your creative side to, to kind of go down a whole new path than we've ever really been able to, to go down before. I love that you called it my creative side too. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's funny because being an engineer, like people don't necessarily think of us that way. Um, but really it takes a lot of uh, creativity to kind of imagine um, this world or even designing, you know, I, I design like circuit boards sure. um, for reference designs for these systems. And um, it does take a lot of creativity to overcome different challenges, different trade-offs uh, in, um, in these systems. I think that, you know, my, my boss said it very well a few years ago. We, we've made this transition from having a computer in a car to building a car around a computer. And I mean, I think I heard the, the average number of, we call them ECUs, or um, they're just essentially little computers in the car. The number of them in the late 90s was like three. And now there's like 120 on average. <laughs> it's really more computer than it is machine. And, um, I think just figuring out how to make it all work together in a safe, reliable way. Right. I think that's everyone's biggest challenge, right? For sure. <laughs> that kind of like leads me to a, a, another point, which is, you know, how do you, you know, you have to, you're balancing this, let's say, you know, next level infotainment system um, as being interactive and valuable to the user, but also it, mm -hmm. you have to kind of watch the line of it being distracting um, just in case the, you know, mm -hmm. the driver has to do something. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so many different components of it. I, you know, how do you, how, what do you think when it comes to kind of those topics of that, you know, distracting first, you know, balancing that with the value and the interaction that the driver has when you take the driving part out of it? 
Yeah, I think that we're at a pivotal point right now where we have to find that balance. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, every engineer that I come across um, here at Texas Instruments, um, even um, at OEMs, automotive manufacturers and tier ones, they're, they're very concerned about that, making sure that it's not distracting, um, that we are enabling the user to be safe um, in what they're doing, but also um, getting the right information and the right connectivity as well. Um, it's we're at we're at that pivotal point right now where it's you know we're not at level three autonomy, we're not at level four or level five. We're really only at two two and a half in um, some new cars, and um, you know it's it's going to be something that will enable us to do so much more. But right now, we it's a huge design consideration to make sure that you are not being distracting, distracting at all, um, just but being able to interact with your car in a safe, reliable way. Yeah, and thinking about it from not just the, you know, your side being the creative and being the engineering side of it for the design, but also from the driver. Um, when they put that headset on, I, obviously I know it's virtual reality. I know I'm sitting in a room. I know things going to happen. But when you really get immersed in it and you're sitting there driving and you start to think about yourself as a driver, as you've been driving for X number of years, and then all of a sudden the, the <laughs> dashboard is a TV screen or a computer screen. And you kind of lose the fact, like the thought of you're actually in a car, which is great from a getting your time back, being able to provide more value than driving. But there's also a level of anxiety that gets attached to it where it's like you can't see anything. Mm. I mean, obviously, you could probably obviously turn it off and see out the windows. But, you know, you're in full trust mode at this point. Like You're just trusting that the car and the telematics and all the other cars around you <laughs> and the drivers, everything is going to be fine. Because if you're looking at your screen, you're not seeing another car possibly running into you or anything like that. And I think it's, mm -hmm. there's that whole hurdle that we kind of have to get, get over. And I think, especially, you know, maybe <laughs> in, the, in the older generations, that's going to be a hard hurdle to get to. I mean, they're scared of using cell phones for things and putting their, you know, information out on, on the internet. So I feel like you're going to get to a point where you're going to have a big group of people who's going to be scared, especially when a lot of the cars on the road, maybe are not connected. But um, what are your thoughts kind of on balancing and, and, and kind of curbing the, that fear? Because, Again, I was in a virtual reality environment, but there was a little bit of anxiety, that was, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> right. I know. It's, I think that's such an interesting take on it because there's, there's not just like the advancement of technology. There's the ethics of it and there's the perception sure. of it, right? Um, it's, you, ha you do have to think about the people that are like, no, well, I like driving. Right. Sure. <laughs> I like driving my car. Um, like, I don't want to give that up. Um, or you have you have people that are like, no, I don't want to. I don't trust the system. Um, and I think that it it is something that we'll have to overcome kind of as a society. Um, you know, honestly, um, these cars, they the, these autonomous cars, they there's a lot of like, there's plenty of things on the news nowadays, like when they fail, mm -hmm. but the, the percentage, the failure rate compared right. to um, people failing in the car is a lot lower. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it's just a matter of perspective. It's a better headline. Um, honestly, 
Yeah, right? Yeah, right? It's, I mean, for me, it's, I know I am the dumbest thing in my car. I really am. <laughs> I've got computers that are um, not failing as often as I do. Um, and it's, it is something that we're going to have to um, overcome as a society, just kind of changing that perspective. But I think one thing that is, um, that we have to keep in mind is that it's not a unit step function. And I, I guess that's the engineer coming out in me again, but it's not just going from zero to one <laughs> um, when it comes to autonomy or connectivity. Um, it's a gradual process. Sure. And I think that a lot of times like people envision like, oh, autonomy, like you are lucky because you got to see those different steps, like mm -hmm. maybe all in uh, over a span of two minutes, right. but it's, you got to see those different steps. And I think that these steps, although we have made so much progress in the past 15 years in the automotive world, I do think that, you know, there will be time to, um, to acclimate because, as you already mentioned, um, you know, cars are going to have to interact with, uh, connected cars are gonna to have to interact with non-connected cars for a little while. Um, autonomous cars are gonna to have to interact with non-autonomous cars for a while. So there's going to be a, it's less of an intersection and more of a transition. And I think that people will be able to adapt just like they adapted to cell phones. Right. Um, just like they adapted to um, flying and airplanes. Sure. Um, I think that with every technology, um, there will be that ad adaptation, but there are perceptions that um, some people will have to overcome in order to, to really accept that growth. Right. And I've kind of, speaking from personal experience, just like the cars that I've had over the years, I've kind of gone through a similar progression that, I can see how at large scale that can help. Um, but it, it definitely, you know, it's it's like, you know, holding your hand, kind of taking baby steps to get used to this technology. So mm -hmm. for instance, like my car has a ton of different technology-based safety features. So it has the adaptive cruise control. So it'll adjust based on the car in front of me and the speed I set, um, you know, the lane departure warnings mm -hmm. and a few other things. But the one mm -hmm. thing that was like the scariest to get used to was the adaptive cruise control because I would set it on the highway and then eventually the highway would turn into a road with a light and the cars in front of me would stop or you'd mm -hmm. be in traffic and your car would be making its own judgment on how fast it can go behind that car before it needs to start to slow down before it comes to a dead stop. And it's not the same pace at which mm -hmm. I do it. So when the car does it mm -hmm. and kind of like slows down much closer to the car than I would, it's like, you know, your hands are like on the wheel, your feet are hovering above the pedals, like just in case it's <laughs> but in it, but it, it, right. it does every time, you know, it's just like the repetition and it's getting used to this being now the norm um, because it's, inter it's not interacting mm -hmm. with another car. It's just using its sensors to say, okay, there's a car this far in front of me. Um, obviously environmental condition could affect that, but for the most part, it works every time. But the first couple of times I'm like, is this car going to slow down? Like why it's, it's what's gonna happen <laughs> here. And then eventually it, it, you know, then it does. And then, like, right. you know, every time you do it, okay, now you feel more comfortable. But I, I think that's kind of hitting to your point where this mm -hmm. progression through, you know, the next car somebody buys has these features in it. And then the next car somebody buys has, you know, the next level of features in it. And just throughout time over the next number of years, just becoming more of the norm mm -hmm. for little pieces. And then overall, we start to really transition. And it's like, you know, how do we live without these things? Yeah, this transition, I think, is really, yeah. like this gradual 
or somewhat gradual transition, I think is really important to highlight, not only in terms of how people adopt it, but in terms of implementation. Uh, and what I mean by that is mm-hmm. when looking at all of the wonderful and scary things that some of these new capabilities within vehicles uh, can do, uh, it's tempting to immediately jump to a future in which all vehicles are like that. But vehicles are expensive and people hold on to them for years. Very true. Uh, and mm-hmm. same with lots of infrastructure that would need to change. You know, I love the idea of having a parking lot that can talk to my car and let me know, oh, there's a parking spot open here. But that's going to necessitate the mm-hmm. infrastructure in that parking lot being built so that it can communicate right. in some way. Uh, who's paying for that? Is it the parking lot? Mm-hmm. Are they incentivized? Right. Maybe. Um, but like a lot of these things, we, it's easy to look at the future and say, here's what this world could look like, but it's not going to happen in the snap of our fingers. Uh, it's going to be this transition of, and so that's very interesting to me is like, not only what does the future look like when all vehicles are autonomous and we can have wonderful dreams about what that might be, but how do we actually get there? (laughs) Because there will be this transition where some percentage will have some level of autonomy, but most won't because they are older cars um, and people might take some time to upgrade to the new one and purchase the new one, um, particularly with vehicles, which can last, you know, you can have a car for a decade. Uh, so I think it's something mm-hmm. important for people to keep in mind is like, it's fun. Also, it's fun to look at the future and think, wow, like what would it look like with, when all vehicles are like this? But it's also important to remember that mm-hmm. the future is built in the present. Uh, so there's, also the consideration of how do we get there? And part of how we get there is taking into account the way things are now. Um, And so you can't just build cars Mm -hmm. that are, oh yeah, they all, this car works because it can talk to other cars and therefore be autonomous. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't work if most cars aren't already like that, which they won't be. So it needs to be autonomous Mm -hmm. to some level, independent of vehicles that are, you know, dumb cars (laughs) Uh, until more. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a lot of industries that are affected by this too. Right. Like, you know, you got to think about, this is not something that I'm too connected with, but I was sitting at a restaurant the other day watching TV. Um, they, for some reason, they, they had, they didn't really have any sports on. They just had the car auctions. So you have these people who are spending tons of time collecting cars, driving cars. And like like you mentioned earlier, Hope, is people just love to drive, right? So there's, there's just different mm-hmm. things that are going to change. You know, the insurance industry is probably affected by this. There's a ton of different areas that, you know, unless they're all on the same page, I feel like this transition it, it, maybe it's it's not so much the technology that's going to hold this up. It's going to be the, the the perception, the consumer adoption, the regulations and stuff. Um, it's a very interesting experience just to kind of talk through um, because it, we're we're living in it now. Yeah, I, I think that you guys have great points, and I I think it just highlighting it again. It's a transition period, and it's not. It's something that we gradually get used to. I just, I, I like to use the example of your, your smartphone. Um, you know, how many years ago did you not have a smartphone? Is probably 10 years ago, right? Sure. <laughs> um, most, a lot of people have like, have had smartphone for nearly a decade now. And honestly, I can't imagine like living without it. And I think I'm, I'm curious about like even your car where you're saying you have adaptive cruise control where you have like, the lane departure warnings. And you said the first couple of times that you're using this, I like, I felt anxious for you because I know that feeling of like, Oh, do I trust the steering wheel to like keep me in the lane line? Um, but I bet you sit in traffic and you are just like, 
I can't imagine not having this anymore. You know, <laughs> it's such a great asset and it just keeps, to your guys' point, it just keeps building on itself. Um, I, I, as you said, it's like the technology, it's not, it's not something that you're just developing for the future. It's for today. You have to build that today. And we have the technology now. We have the technology to enable all of these features. Um, it's just a matter of like environment, like the environment, the perceptions, the implications, the ability to engineer it right. um, quickly. You know, there's a lot of things, a lot of factors that go into these systems. And so it does lend itself to that gradual buildup as opposed to just that unit step function. Yeah, there are two more <laughs> points I want to make and then we can kind of transition to the Ask IoT questions. But one is, it's funny that I, I give you this story about me driving my Jeep and kind of these different technologies and how hesitant I was. But I was put in a Tesla one day to go drive it and try mm. the autopilot. Mm -hmm. And I was completely trusting. Like I took my hands, I took everything off and it was like, this thing's going to, it has to work. <laughs> like Elon said it works, so it's going to work. And so I was just like in the car with three other people and was like, never tried this before on a highway. He's like, yeah, just take your feet off, take your hands off. It'll, it'll drive you around the corners. I was like, all right, cool. And just did it. And, um, but, but then I'm like hesitant with my own car, like about to, you know, just stop. Behind the car. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it's an interesting thing. And then maybe it's a liability. Yeah. yeah maybe, uh, <laughs> liability yep, thing. It's, it's his fault. I told me you know, the, 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 the sales guy told me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other point I wanted to make and something we didn't really talk about, but it's, it's interesting question is, is the environment, how this plays into the whole shift into, um, cars communicating with each other. And, mm -hmm what they're able to do because i know for instance if you can't read the lanes part my sensors on my car don't will not work or if if they're covered by lots of snow you know how limiting is that like mm -hmm. i can't i have to do it manually like can a car drive itself autonomously when it can't see anything but just white snow and different depths like you know how do you guys think about those different or how do you i guess i don't know if it's necessarily something that you're particularly working on but have you kind of heard or kind of different approaches to how different environmental factors will be will play into the development of um, or affect I guess the autonomous movement well you're just making the business case for connectivity sure, sure. <laughs> because if you have say like a lamppost that is able to um, tell you where the edge of the road yep. is um, then that's where it works hand in hand with autonomy mm -hmm. and I think that's it's it's tough because I think a lot a lot of times we look at the business case like adding these connected features that's an added dollar amount into the car and what is the business case for that why would someone pay more for something that they're used to having or that should just help with safety um, and I think that's those are the types of things that really do make a business case um, adding you know, adding that uh, connectivity into to um, help with like uh, brutal road conditions um, or a construction site that's up ahead um, that just got added, adding that connectivity feature to tell your car to slow down because there's workers on the side of the road. Right. Um, you know, adding adding that uh, opting in for data um, capabilities in order to you know access certain uh, access like a uh, a coupon as you drive past um, an in and out 
uh, here in California, (laughs) you know? So it's like those, those types of things do add to the business case. And that's why I think connectivity in the car, um, it's, it's going to happen. Um, and it's a really exciting opportunity that will unlock a lot of, um, cool, cool features. Definitely. Can I anything before I get into ask IT stuff? <laughs> I, I was thinking a huge smile on his face. <laughs> I was thinking about debating whether to, uh, I was mulling over something in my mind, I guess, just to give you a window into my thought process. Uh, I was thinking about your comment about the lamp potentially telling you where you are. If, uh, you know, the the road conditions are such that you couldn't read the lines on the road. And my thinking was, does that actually make sense? Like, would you have, because, you know, who would be installing the lampposts and maintaining them? Wouldn't it be cheaper just to paint better lines <laughs> on the roads? Well, uh, like six inches of snow on top. Well, that's, that's true, right. And, and then I started going down the rabbit hole of, okay, that could work because it actually probably would be cheaper to just paint better lines <laughs> on roads. But then if it's extremely reliant just on the lines, that could open up to very... Uh, to bad actors who might just go out onto a road and paint the lines into a wall. Yeah. Uh, so this, that's where my mind <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was debating. I was like, do I bring this up? Uh, it's like, <laughs> I feel like that sounds like a road runner uh, type of cartoon yeah. scenario. Yeah. But in a, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> kind of right. messed up way. You're totally, you're totally right. Like, I yeah. think that just goes back to, yeah. Wiley. <laughs> that goes back to the, the whole, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of implications that bringing connectivity to the car has because it you're putting connectivity um, into a vehicle that has um, critical safety uh, features. And yeah, like security is a huge issue. Safety is a huge issue. And it is something that, um, you know, is is greatly considered as these, as these systems are being designed, um, you know, backup systems, functional safety. Um, this is, I think that just kind of speaks to that point because I think there, there is going to be some sort of, some sort of connectivity, whether it's in the lamppost or better painted line or something like that, but it's, um, you know, (laughs) maybe it's connected lane lines on the road, who knows, but it's, uh, I, there, it's going to happen um, in order to have these better connected systems to um, there will be, you know, a dollar amount tied to it um, that makes sense, um, whether it's, you know, like healthcare costs being reduced. And so therefore, you know, that's <laughs> there's there's a whole whole bunch of uh, uh, ideas of how you can trade off and and really make the business case for connectivity in the car um, and going into government infrastructure um, that might be paying for it or private infrastructure that might be paying for it that you opt in for you know there's there's a lot but it really does um, there is a huge critical component of safety and security when it comes to connectivity being added into the car yeah it's an interesting point Kaelin now I'm thinking about cars as coyote, and I'm like, the coyote's not intelligent thing. And now we're talking about smart cars. I feel like we just got to keep this. But, but all right, let's transition quickly into the IT. I ask IT questions. Um, I'm just going to pick two of them out because I think they're. We've talked a little bit about them, but if we just want to succinctly go through them, that'd be great. So we talked a lot about 5G, but um, and lidar we mentioned. Um, but what other technologies not called 5G? Let's say, uh, hope. Do you believe will have the greatest impact on the automotive space? 
going forward? From a connectivity sure. standpoint, yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I think that I think we will have a huge five G will be one of the bigger impacts. Um, I think that people uh, aren't the most people don't necessarily know about DSRC, mm -hmm. which is what has been around a long time and is a Wi Fi based um, uh, standard or protocol. Uh, that is used for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle or vehicle-to-everything communication. Um, I think that, you know, as our legislative bodies are being, are deciding what standard to use, I think we'll see a mixture of DSRC and 5G, um, especially since 5G isn't necessarily rolled out yet um, for the automotive space or just in general. So um, I think that I think that these are going to be some of the big protocol that have a big impact on um, automotive connectivity. Um, and then the, the second question, which we've kind of talked about these things already, it seems like in our conversation, but maybe we just summarize them up for the listeners, which is what are the biggest hindrance to autom autonomous cars becoming mainstream? And we've talked about um, kind of the perception, obviously there's a technology component there, but what are some other things that maybe we're not thinking about that would be kind of a hindrance to autonomous cars you know, really getting out there? Uh, I think that, I think it's the ecosystem. Okay. Um, I think it's the perception, um, the con consumer's perception of um, connectivity in the autonomous mm -hmm. car. I think it's um, legislative, um, just, you know, what standard do we adopt? Um, and I mean, governmental mm -hmm. bodies from an infrastructure standpoint, what will they invest? Um, or like I said, private entities that um, maybe will allow people to opt in for, for, to, to utilize the business case. Um, I think that it's just kind of all of those things um, that are wrapped up uh, that kind of influences the ecosystem for autonomous and connected cars. That will, um, <laughs> I guess that's the biggest hindrance. It's the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I view it as ecosystem and infrastructure. So on the infrastructure side, this goes back to what we're talking about uh, regarding having to build from the past. So if moving to a fully autonomous future for vehicles means reshaping the landscape or cities or how we do parking, all of these things are actual physical things in, in the world, like concrete. Uh, or, uh, you know, parking garages that m might need to change. But if they are physical structures, uh, they there's often a lot of investment that's already gone into them. So to tear them down in favor of something new, it just takes time. So I think past infrastructure might be a hindrance. Um, and then, yeah, I totally agree on the ecosystem front. If in areas in which one organization can do something alone, then there's, it really just comes to how fast can the organization do this thing. Uh, but if it's a something that requires many different parties, which autonomous vehicles do, because it requires stakeholders in the form of governments mm -hmm. from the legislative side, it requires different all the different manufacturers working together uh, to standardize or to have standards around connectivity. Um, it requires many, many different pieces. And that's what an ecosystem means, is that there's these different players that serve different roles but need to work together for the general health of the ecosystem but that also means that it could be as slow as whatever the slowest 
critical piece of that ecosystem is. So bringing everyone along for the ride, <laughs> the technology yeah. might be there, but maybe it's legislation that slows things down. Maybe it's the lack of connected light posts <laughs> or painted roads or whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think ecosystem and then also to me, infrastructure are some of the barriers that might slow adoption of or widespread adoption of autonomous vehicles. Yeah, the, the legacy infrastructure, right. I think is what you're hitting on, which I think it's a really great point. Correct. Yes. All right. So before we sign off here, I think I wanted to ask you something. I know we kind of talked about this in the pre-interview, and I think it's really important to talk about. Um, but I wanted to ask you about something that really stood out to me when I was doing my research. And it seems like you're quite active in organizations both within and outside of Texas Instruments that focuses on empowering women in the tech industry, as mm -hmm. well as encouraging um equality in you know, STEM education for girls who are looking to pursue tech fields, for instance. So, and one of them, I guess, was the um, Bay Area Women's Initiative, which is, uh, as well as those high-tech, mm -hmm. high-heels board of directors, as you're involved in that. Um, all mm -hmm. seemed very interesting from just kind of my, my general research, but what do you see as the biggest hurdles or challenges in getting women into the tech industry? You know, does it start at a young age or you know, what advice do you have for maybe the women out there looking to break into the tech industry, whether as an engineer or some other role? Also, we probably have a lot of, you know, parents maybe out listening who have daughters who are shown interest in STEM. Mm -hmm. And what is your advice to them to kind of keep them motivated, to keep them going down this path? Um, because what you mentioned earlier was it is they do get deterred. Um, but how do we kind of avoid that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, this is a huge um, subject that's that's passion i'm very passionate about um and i am very involved yeah high tech high heels is an organization um that's based in dallas and uh, i helped expand here to the bay area um i i'm involved in the women's initiative here at texas instruments um and i think that you know my my goal is just i want to get more uh girls into um stem uh, STEM education, and then uh, further into their careers, um, and build them up, build women up in their careers, and and that goes for you know, um, women uh, across the board, uh, diversity, um, and inclusion for it, it's it just really affects everything. I think that there's a huge business case um, in general, but it's also just mm -hmm. the right thing to do um, because it allows for so much more innovation. Um, I can only imagine what we're leaving on the table with, um, you know, if we're, if we have very similar like-minded people, similar backgrounds in the room and innovation comes from, you know, diversity and, and struggle and challenging status quo, um, looking at something from a different perspective. And so I think that, you know, we, we just need more um, mm -hmm. diversity in the tech world. Um, and I think that, you know, one aspect of that is getting more girls into, um, into STEM. Um, and especially girls of color, we need, we need ev more women in general in uh, the tech world. So I would say that, you know, to the people listening, if you have a young girl that is um, interested in math and science, just keep encouraging them. <laughs> like tell them that they're good at math and science. That is, that's a very important thing. It's actually scientifically proven studies have been done 
that girls uh, lose their confidence starting as early as fourth grade. And having that encouragement actually really helps. Um, get them a mentor, um, whether it's, you know, a colleague at work or someone, you know, in the, um, in, you know, the STEM world, um, connect them, just connect the dots and introduce your, um, uh, these young girls to, to people that, uh, that can help them see themselves right. in that career. Um, this is, this is data backed stuff. Um, I do have a blog article that, uh, I could link, uh, that that kind of connects all the data to this. But anecdotally speaking, that's something that happened for me. My dad and my parents, they just, um, they encouraged me from a young age. My teachers told me I was good at math. They connected me to mentors from an early age. And that's how I, I ended up studying electrical engineering. So um, yeah, all that encouragement and just multiple touch points. That's what I'd recommend to to those awesome. who are listening. Yeah, I, and I, I will say that your excitement and enthusiasm exhibited through this conversation, it, <laughs> it's, um, it's very infectious. So I, I'm, sh you know, I think if we could have more women out there doing those kinds of things, I think that'd be, that'd be incredible. Um, so I appreciate you kind of sharing and shedding a little light onto that. We will uh, put any, any links you want in our, um, in the description and the show notes so that, you know, if people listen to this part of the show, and they're like, wow, you know, my daughter would benefit from, from this kind of, um, you know, guidance. Here's a way to kind of go about it. So reading that article, whatever it may be, um, we'll definitely would love to share that. Um, but before we sign off here, are there, um, I guess, if people wanted to follow up and talk to you just specifically maybe about the, the, the STEM aspect and or anything we talked about in general, is there a way you like people to kind of engage with you? Like, is it through Twitter, LinkedIn, um, anything kind of on the social front? Yeah, okay. LinkedIn, please. Um, my name's Hope Pavenzi, and I think I'm the only Hope Pavenzi <laughs> out there. So it uh, should be pretty straightforward to find Very me cool. on LinkedIn. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. I thought this <laughs> conversation was great. Um, hopefully, we'll have you back at some point. Um, so thanks for taking some time to, to chat with Caleb and I. Thank you, guys. It was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, it was, it's fun to talk about all the possibilities that there are for um, the connected car and connected future. Totally agree. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IoT for All podcast and another Ask IoT episode with our special guest, Hope Bavenzi of Texas Instruments. If you did enjoy it, please leave a rating or review on whichever platform you're listening to us on. It helps others find it and lets us know that you're a fan, which is pretty cool for us. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you always get our latest episodes the second they become available. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.